What is it? Uh, well, it's called a uh, randomizer, and it's fitted to the guidance systems and operates under a very complex scientific principle called potluck. Ah, no one knows where we're going. Not even the Black Guardian. Not even us. Hello and welcome to the Randomizer Podcast, episode 9. I am Tim. I'm Charles. And I'm Connor. Yes, another special guest this week. We have Charles' son Connor is joining us. So, as usual, a spoiler warning for the latest Doctor Who episode, Ascension of the Cybermen, and indeed spoilers for all Doctor Who that precedes that. Also, a spoiler warning for spoilers, because we will be having a tangent this week which talks about the nature of spoilers and how we relate to them. Let's talk about Ascension of the Cybermen. The end begins. It does indeed. Really, really enjoyed this one. Very fast-paced, didn't let it up for a second. Set up, obviously, episode two rather wonderfully. The island stuff was rather weird. I'm sort of assuming that's Gallifrey. Very good episode. Lone Cyberman again. Really frightening, creepy. New designer Cybermen's looking fantastic. It's going well. What's your hot take, Connor? Uh, I agree with most of that, to be honest. It was really exciting and fast-paced. It's good a continuation from last week. And... Again, this Lone Sideman character is really, really interesting. I don't know what it is. It's something we've sort of spoken about before, like giving the Sideman a Davros-type figure. I definitely think that. I mean, I think they attempted that with John Lumick back in Rise of the Cybermen. Mm. But I think it works better with this sort of character. It's uh, ironically making the Cybermen sort of really creepy and scary, <laughs> but it's taking the one thing that Cybermen don't have, which is emotion. Yes, I was interested in the episode. I, I had to watch it twice, and that's the first mm. time I've done that this season because I think I watched it when I was very tired, actually. My eyes were kind of closing at some point, so I don't think that was its fault. And so I went back and watched it again and did find it a lot more satisfying the second time. The first time, I was a little underwhelmed. It's hard to separate what was just being dog-tired and what was actually yeah. anything with the episode itself, but there's obviously Earthshock homages going on with armies of marching Cybermen. I saw a hilarious tweet of the a still of the cyber drones, the cyber heads that were flying over all kind of frozen in midair and somebody saying this yeah. is Cybermen on graduation day. <laughs> yeah, I, that was the only bit that Connor and I were both like, oh, that's a little bit clunky. Is there a head in there? That's what I want to know. Yes, it's been... Or if you got a Cyberman well, without a head back at base piloting the drone on its smartphone <laughs> app or whatever. Maybe it's a cross between them and the Tocqueville. And is this the Irish thing you alluded to Gallifrey? Maybe it's that old joke of Gallifrey being in Ireland. Getting back to the, the drone heads, Connor and I were talking but that's only about the, the fact that there was at least one good point. It is the sort of bit that I maybe cringed at because luckily it was at the start of the episode, so it, it was the only point. But at least it did kind of serve a purpose in that it did further the plot and actually made an effect on the rest of the episode because, you know, it, it got rid of the doctors or all the doctors' like equipment that would have been really, really handy if it, mm. you know, can remain there. And actually, you know, killed a couple of people, which got her really riled up. And yeah. No, it was quite, quite sort of brutal how little her preparations counted for at all, really. Yeah, I think that was it. Sort of had a sort of sense of impending doom to the episode in a lot of ways. It's sort of a bit Empire Strikes Back mm. in that sense. You know, sort of uh, everything they're doing just seems to to lead towards another. Disaster. A couple of points that I thought were, were a little bit weird. Right. Why did two cyber ships appear when we had the lone cyberman and his two mates and that was it? And then basically the doctor steals one of the ships and then they pursue in the other. Maybe the other one was just full of heads. <laughs> I mean, the the ships are sort of designed for two pilots, right? Yes, With this. arms and legs. And the leader just seems to stand about. It's a bit you of know. a sort of sex dungeon design to the cyber control rooms, isn't there? Yeah, kind of yeah. Strapped into this piloting <laughs> chair. And also, okay, fine, she escapes in the ship, but they said that you couldn't walk to the TARDIS, you'd been killed. Why didn't she just fly to the TARDIS? I realise the point of that is to further the plot and get her moving but you know when when they're actually doing something like this I'll overlook little minor nuggets you know because that's just being petty I doubt it's the least plausible leaving behind of the TARDIS that the show's ever done you could almost make a checklist for reasons we can't just run off to the TARDIS this week they were in a rush yeah I think flying to the TARDIS getting out that ship parking that ship getting out of there, getting into the it's very time consuming yeah. you could just see it do do 
<laughs> Backing in. This cyber vehicle is cyber reversing. Yeah. Okay, so there's another moment that struck me as a little odd, and I wondered if it was tied into the end of Can You Hear Me with the Doctor's social awkwardness moment with Graham, which was when, uh, now I forget the character's name, the lady that they meet on the planet is explaining what's been going on, and the Doctor cuts her dead and says, I don't want your life story. Yeah, that was a bit rude. It was. That was uh, Julie Graham. Julie Graham. And yeah. do you remember the character name? They've oh. all got quite sort of strange character names. Raphael or Raphael something? or something. I was trying to think of like that blue engineer, blue plumber. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. like Raffalo, wasn't it? Another tiny little line thing, which is yeah. Graham's fluff. And yeah. is it a fluff? Oh. When he sort of says, I'm the doc, I'm the something. And I've seen speculation about Graham's the doctor, and it's like, yeah. what? They're surely not. And they've, they've kind of went a bit mad online with that. But, but it's not a sort of time of television production where a fluff like that gets left to stand. Yeah, that, that really feels weird because doing editing ourselves, you know what you, you go over things with Yeah, like you don't leave in like lines like that or yeah. missing hands or anything. Oh, hang on. Mm. So either the editing in this this sort of era is like below par, or that is maybe misdirection. I just realised. Okay, you had the the missing finger, the uh-huh. missing hand. You've got missing heads this what? week. Missing heads. Uh-huh. So you know maybe we're basically going to build a like doctor. a Frankenstein. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, it it was a weird one. I didn't notice it at the time, but went back and watched when it was pointed yeah. out, and yeah, sure enough, it does sound like he begins to say, "I'm the doctor," and that is just odd. It's not even a bad cut, it's just, it's a like it's one a line, sentence yeah. as well. Like, yeah. It just makes a mistake. I mean, maybe yeah. he's the doctor that he clearly thinks he is, is obviously William Hartnell. Yeah. He's got the yeah. Oh yeah, of course he is. Yeah. But no, that is a very strange moment. I don't know if this moment with Julie Graham was sort of more along the social awkwardness kind of spectrum that they're casting the doctor onto. But again, it was another thing. It was definitely played deliberately because there was a sort of twist of the face from Julie Graham as a reaction. Mm. So it wasn't sort of just an incidental thing that got brushed over. Yeah. Well, the Doctor's done plenty of this sort of thing before in terms of, you know, Pertwee and Tom Baker would often just ride roughshod over whichever person was boring them at the moment. Absolutely. I think maybe she's, in, in this particular story, she's very impatient because, mm. she, she, you know, she's trying to get all that stuff set up straight away and then when it gets all blown up, we get the whole thing of her being really aggravated at her companions again. Yeah, what, With the, after the Ryan smackdown the previous episode. Yeah. Even get, it happened in... Fugitive of the Jadoon as well, where mm-hmm. that was that was another smackdown for Ryan as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yay! There's been several moments this season when I've actively asked myself, why are they staying with her? Yeah, yeah, it's actually becoming pretty uh, obvious that you know we're not going to have all the companions by the end of this. I think, or maybe the the forthcoming special. I, for one, will be glad to either be whittled down to one companion or for them all to go. You know, I like Graham, don't get me wrong, and I think Yaz's potential, you know my um, point of view on um, what's his name? Oh yeah, the chair. But, uh, you know, it's just um, it was so something cool. so we, cool. we were talking about um, this week Lance Parkin, you know, the Doctor author. Yes. I uh, used to do some of the BBC books and New Adventures. Now, he had been discussing the roles of the companions and so forth and missed opportunities. And there was one thing I latched onto, which was um, in the first episode, Ryan, first thing he's doing is blogging. Why didn't they do webisodes where you would get Ryan's blog about the, you know, the previous story? You could have Ryan sort of bigging himself up a bit more and stuff. That would have built his character. Yeah. You know, because you're limited... In the episode, you've got a little bit of character building with Ryan and stuff like that. You know, so many little tiny things that, that in the RTD era, that would have been a definite... Or Moffat with things like Moffat, Pond, Pond yeah, Life and so on. Exactly. But I, I guess it takes both the, the time, effort, and yeah. probably there's no more money for that. So you need a showrunner who's going to want to... Can be asked. I don't think that's fair, <laughs> but maybe there is a sort of... A scheduling thing, but I don't know. You can only speculate. So, I, I mean, lots of excitement for tonight. My other big sort of takeaway was that this was the most part one of a two-part oh. season finale I've ever seen. An utterly unsurprising shock ending mm. with Sasha Dewan yeah. glumping I, out of the big I mean, portal. I'll be honest. I mean, I wasn't shocked that Gallifrey turned up either, no. and, you know, because it just seemed that was what it was going to be. But it did feel epic. 
You know, yeah. it really yeah. had a massively epic feel. Because the episode was so like epic and fast-paced, and when it actually came to the ending, it didn't feel like it was about to end. Then you get the master coming out and saying, "Oh, this is going to change next yeah. week." It's actually <laughs> could have first... as well have said, "Oh, that's all we've got time for, folks." But yeah, you know. <laughs> exactly. It's the first time since Chibnall took over where an episode's ended where I'm like, "Give me more." Yo, yeah. give me more. I want you know that's a good sign. But I am excited for it. Oh, me too. But we'll see. I mean, I really hope there's some sort of progression for whatever Ruth's place in it all mm. is. This Brendan arc, we haven't really talked about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the weirdest part of it. I think also, it was the most skillful part of it. Yeah, actually. it was very, very good. I mean, it makes this a crossover episode as well what with was... uh, Broadchurch. The bit where he falls off the cliff okay. is the actual beach in Broadchurch. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, so but, maybe it's David Tennant who's going to come along. Well, uh, yeah, it could well be. But I genuinely think this whole thing will work out as something... Doctory, but it will lead into that joke of Gallifrey, that's somewhere in Ireland, mm. isn't it? You know? It'd be a shame if they didn't. When they take Brendan back mm. to the police room yes. and strap him into the chair, the, the sort of headphones and the blue light on that apparatus yeah. felt cyber many. But it also felt chameleon archy as well. Okay, so yeah. Because you know, the character didn't seem surprised by any of it. No. It's just like, very placid, like, isn't Because, like, you know, his, well, his adopted dad and that policeman were there in front of him. They hadn't aged a day, and mm. he's like an old man. He just doesn't seem shocked by anything. It also, it's like he's expecting... The fact I still don't know, though, if that's just weak writing and pacing, though, because yeah. it could just be that it's all meant to happen so fast, but it didn't pan out that way in the edit, mm. so actually there would have been room for him to have some lines. You feel the absence of those yeah. lines as an oddity. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he was found as a child had me thinking of those lines from Utopia, you know, I was found as a naked child on the shores of the Silver Devastation. Is the Silver uh, Devastation anywhere near Broadchurch? Well, it could well be. It's been Sil- a good name for the episode. Maybe the Silver Devastation is on the A452 and you take a left turn to Gallifrey. Uh, you're thinking of Centre Parks, aren't you? <laughs> no, I mean, the Silver Devastation sounds like a Cyberman episode for sure. So maybe <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, could tie well. it in. I enjoyed that it didn't really tie in at all yet, mm. but that means it bloody well has to do this week. So we're recording on Sunday afternoon ahead of the final episode of yeah, this season. So we'll know tonight what's yeah. happening, basically. We must ask the doctor. Dr. Schultz has returned, and welcome, Dr. Schultz. Um, I wanted to ask you this week about the transmat technology, which we see occasionally in Doctor Who. It's kind of Doctor Who's version of the transporters in Star Trek or the teleporter in Blake 7, a way of getting from A to B instantly without using a TARDIS. Now, I'm aware there's been scientific research into teleportation at a kind of very, very microscopic level, and the idea of quantum entanglement suggests that information can be passed over long distances, seemingly in contradiction to to the limit of the speed of light. I wanted to ask if there's any chance that we'll see human teleportation one day in the near future. Well, of course, this is completely impossible. Thank you, Dr. Schultz. Uh, they were inspirational. A man is the sum of his memories, you know, a, a time lord even more so. So this is your cheat memory, which is when we have randomly selected an episode from Doctor Who's past, and we first of all see what we can remember about it, and then go away and rewatch it, and come back full of fresh insights, or indeed hackneyed old cliches. This time we didn't select Matt Smith for once, but we got a Peter Capaldi episode, The Caretaker, and I really enjoyed rewatching this. Yeah, so did I. The thing I really forgot was the Capaldi episodes and uh, Moffat in general tended to have these sort of bizarre cold opens. You know, that have nothing to do with the episode as such. I mean, we start off uh, the Doctor and Clara are chained to some sort of monolith in a desert. Oh, yes. And it's, it's all little mini adventures that Clara's been on while trying to juggle her life. It's very coupling. She's leaving some sort of underwater world and getting into a taxi and she's still got seaweed in her hair, etc, <laughs> etc. Et yeah. It was very amusing, really nice start to the episode. Capaldi is playing brilliant comedy in this one about deep cover and everything. It's a romp without doubt, this one, I think. And it felt like a really long cold open, actually. Mm. I think it's kind of two cold opens, isn't it? Because it Mm. both does that montage of Clara's double life. And then it sets up Capaldi in the school and then titles. Yeah. A very sort of average episode, you know, no massively high stakes, just a nice little character piece and a bit of fun. I think we're settling into defining average as it doesn't have any huge plot arc yeah. moments, which is not really a fair definition, I think. But I'm, I'm, you know, I know what you're meaning. It's one of those sort of steady, here-we-go episodes yeah. without huge links to anything else either side of it, not beyond the, the character arc for Clara. Actually, character piece was how I was going to describe it mm. as well, because essentially that is what it is. The story's fine, and the Skullbox Blitzer is, feel, feels more like 
Sarah Jane Adventures villain mm, yeah, rather than Doctor Who. I feel it definitely point. would have been much more suited to, to that series. It's very enjoyable, and I think it's it's definitely more to to set up Danny as a character and him and the Doctor's issue with each other, maybe. Yeah. Because I don't understand why Clara got so much hate. I think the idea of a companion that becomes addicted to the Doctor's lifestyle is actually quite an interesting concept. I totally agree. Yeah. I got really annoyed with fandom uh, regarding the hatred for Clara. You know, she's sort of this person... I'm in control of my life. I'm. I can do this. I can do these things, and she's enjoying it. There is an absolute joy in her time with the Doctor. She's a sort of adrenaline junkie. And this episode confronts her with her two worlds, mm. and then the measure of the person is in mm. how they rise to that and how they deal with that. With <laughs> I guess both the kind of the honesty of actually okay, I've been playing you two off against each other, or I've been trying to hide you from you, mm. and to salvage the relationships in both cases. This when Clara grows a lot because she has suddenly got to reconcile this sort of double life and for me it's always this unbearable tension of like when's this gonna collapse the light comedy touches of the episode make for a nice safe way to do that an enjoyable way i also love that we have a disruptive influence courtney isn't it she's absolutely wonderful i really like talk i think they go on to sort of look in the face that kind of tension of bringing an actual child in which is the danger yeah and exactly. Clara holds the Doctor to account. If yeah, because he right. has a, um, a, a duty of care. Yeah, and he has a kind of gung-ho attitude to it. I think also it's partly something that crystallised when we were talking about his uh, relationship with Amy Pond, uh, especially young Amy, mm. Amelia. And so, again, with Courtney, he just doesn't see human beings as all that different. No. You know, this is a, a, a young human being, not that different from the other human being that he's hanging around with yeah. Clara. And so he is just like, yeah, come with me and have fun, and thinks about it later mm. to some extent. I think he looks his age as just a concept rather than a reality. Yeah, and he's, he's kind of naive that way, which is mm. kind of charming, although obviously it puts people in danger. Yeah, because he says um, him and Clara look the same age. Danny sort of... <laughs> says, is that your dad? Space dad. Yeah, yeah. Space, Space dad, dad yeah. yeah. Going on about, oh, you know, uh, you look different. Have you had a wash? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Polly's Doctor in this series, at least, is maybe Series 9 as well, is it's probably the most alien mm-hmm. the Doctor's been since yeah. classic. Yeah. And actually in this first season, which is the one I found the hardest to mm. get to grips with the character, actually, I think, he is kind of quite socially awkward, you might say, in a more confident Sheldon mm. sort of way. Sheldon from Big Bang sort yeah. of way and uh, he just says what he thinks and doesn't give a shit for mm. people's feelings he is challenged by Danny I've mentioned this before and I, th- I like that it holds to account the Doctor's use of the military and his relationship with the military it's something that's been too convenient it's been a sonic screwdriver mm. to be able to just pick up the phone to you know whoever and have somebody else do the messy business with the bombs and this is him getting actually held to account for that another sort of thing with fandom oh don't like Danny this that the next thing I thought it was a great performance I thought it was an interesting look at Doctor Who from that other point of view you know this is a guy a soldier he's been under orders for a long time like he says to Clara people like the Doctor they push you they make you Mm -hmm. do things and stuff which is a good app you know, a description of the Doctor. But he's also suffering from PTSD and he sees the negatives of it. He's seeing the things that, you know, when you're in the Doctor's world you, that don't necessarily come to mind. He holds a mirror up to him because this whole season was the Doctor reassessing himself, you mm-hmm. know, am I a good man? It was an interesting journey to take. It's a brave and confident thing for the series to do, to sort of look at the edges of the character that way. Mm. I do like Danny being in opposition to the Doctor. I don't think it's very often. You kind of expect, you know, every kind of companion-type character to come in and see the Doctor's life and be like, oh my god, this is amazing. But I think it's quite refreshing every now and then to have someone who looks at it and is like, no, this is... This is dangerous stuff. Yeah, like, who do you think you are? Yeah, why, why would you? We've had that with people like Jackie in the past too. Yeah. They've got, and again with Danny, I guess you've got someone they love is in the Doctor's world and there's this clearly protective instinct of, well, what are you doing? What mm. danger are you leading them to? And for Danny, that's seen through his recognition of the Doctor as a commanding officer. Rory at first as well wasn't taken with the Doctor. There's another element which of the Doctor's character which is exposed here, which is this slightly kind of smug patronising mm. but also quite alien way of crossing the regenerations in that he jumps to the conclusion that the one with the bow tie in the staff room is Clara's bo- boyfriend and is then all kind of touched and smug that <laughs> she's fallen for the guy who looks a bit like his past self I really like that little joke it works as comedy yeah it really does it's also quite an insight 
into the Doctor's ego. Ego, yeah. Yeah, and also I think his assumptions about what Clara wants from their relationship. We've talked about it last time. There's always this kind of spectre in New Who of the, the attraction potentially between the Doctor and the Companion. And I think things like him sort of saying, you look different if you had a wash, and the Doctor's very alien interactions with Clara like that mm. also serve to completely desexualize any kind of relationship that they're having. Up until the new series, the Companion has always been sidelined in favour of the Doctor. They were literally there to say, what's that? How big is it? Where? Do, what does it do? Uh, how are we going to solve this? Oops, I and, broke my ankle. Yeah. yeah, that sort of thing. Until Ace came mm-hmm. on. And the companion has been front and centre. And I think sometimes, you know, fans are a bit nose out of joint. You know, there was a lot of backlash against Rose and mm-hmm. so on. And I think it's just a case of, you know, well, why is this person important? The Doctor should be the only important person. That's just narrow mind. And I, I don't buy into that. I'm watching it. Yeah, I'm watching it because I'm interested in the Doctor. But I find the whole thing interesting. And I really like the fact that these are people with complex lives. But also, it's the show's flexible enough that it can work from multiple angles. You can follow the adventures of a time-travelling alien and you can also follow the life of a, an ordinary human who bumps into a time-travelling alien. You can look at that structurally in several different ways. No, I totally agree, because a lot of the outrage at that time, I remember, it was like, oh, it's it's not Doctor anymore, it's Clara. Oh, that was God. a horrible line that I heard so much. Yeah. But it's like, oh, when when has Doctor been all about the companion? And it's like, quite a while. <laughs> Pretty much since 2005, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a, a very long time. Some would say since 1988. Yeah, the point of the companion is that it's the accessible character. You know, you can't relate to the Doctor, really. You can relate to aspects, but as a character, you're like, I can't relate to this character that's thousands of years old and comes Ooh. from another planet. However, the companion is my accessible point into the shot. So, yeah, they should be kind of the main focus. Yeah, I mean, it's like Moffat's Sherlock. You can't relate to Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock. You can admire him, but John Watson is the one you relate to. It's also not a zero-sum game. You don't yeah. have to have A or B as the main character. Mm. It's, it's an interaction between all the characters. Could it have been affected by tangential deviation coming out of the warp ellipse? I mean, the best bit about all this Clara, mm, it's not Doctor Who, it's Clara Who, was Moffat had obviously heard all this and completely Flat trolled line. fans by the end of the season where Clara's in the titles, you get her eyes in the titles and I just <laughs> punched the air at that moment because part of me, I really, really like the idea of pissing fandom off or whatever. <laughs> because the, this is why you should never be showrunner. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I don't like fandom, but I admit that I'm part of the problem with fandom Fandom has that sort of entitlement. You know, I'm fully happy to say that I'm as much of a dick as they can be. Oh, I don't think you're that bad. You know, I do have real issues with the toxicity in fandom. Not just Doctor Who, but general, all fandoms have that brings it out of us about mm. having something you intensely enjoy and love and I think also the loudest voices get amplified. Also there is, I think, emotional maturity to be had in terms of you know acknowledging that you're precious about the thing you love but then mm. getting the hell over yourself and just realising that it's not just for you yeah. and that the wider the reach, the richer the programme you know, I remember things like Standing on Forbidden Planet when the new series came back being surrounded by like 10 year olds clamouring for all the new toys that were and just thinking gosh it's really you know it's moved on I sort of found that lovely whereas a lot of people were pissed off that their ownership had ended I mean let's talk to the person who sort the of voice came of in youth. Yeah, who <laughs> came in uh, with new fandom I think it is really fun to stir the pot sometimes because <laughs> I'd completely forgot about that thing from Death in Heaven that you mentioned I thought you were going to talk about Flatline where she basically pretends to be the Doctor for an episode <laughs> I think there's a lot of shows and films in general that now have fans that are kind of worse. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, we're I, taking consolation for the fact that we're not the worst anymore. I, I could name some, but then... Oh, please do. I mean, Oh, okay, like... Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Rick, Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty fans are horrible. God, the bloody lot of you ever... I mean, if you ever Google Rick and Morty McDonald's Szechuan and you will see the biggest bunch of fucking wankers you could ever imagine. Yeah, I say this to my friends a lot. I'm like, look, I like Star Wars or I like Rick and Morty. I like Doctor Who, but I hate the fans. Yeah. 
And I, I, don't, love... I obviously don't mean all of them. I mean the vicious ones who think no. they own the show. It gets me so much, and it does kind of ruin it sometimes, because granted, Series 11 wasn't great. But this series is a massive step up. But there are people who will be negative about it anyway. It's things like the Series 12 box set on Amazon right now has thousands of one-star reviews. That's not even out yet, is it? No, it's not. But the thing is, if you read these one-star reviews, they were being written before the series started. Mm-hmm. They were being written in December 2019. Yep. And obviously it started in January. And it's like... <laughs> Yeah, I, come on. Literally prejudice. <laughs> Please stop this. I totally agree. Yeah, I don't I don't hold with a lot of the criticisms, you know, of, oh, it's wokeness, or it's political correctness gone mad, you know. I, I'm not the sort of person who will totally dismiss something, you know, or sort of just to say something to be right on. The moans about the fact that, you know, Jodie's been cast, the moans about the fact that, Admittedly, I've moaned at the the way certain subjects are handled. I'm not moaned about the subjects. I'm moaning about the writing and the handling and the way it's done because it cheapens the subject. I think it's good for Doctor Who to discuss things. I think it's good to push narratives forward. But it is still an entertainment programme and it has to be done in a clever way. That's my only problem with it. But I have, I mean, I've been recently watching a lot of stuff that I wouldn't normally watch in terms of live fan reaction shows, just to sort of gauge the levels of it. And I mean, there are quite a few that you watch on YouTube. I mean, there is a particular one nearly every day, and it's going on for about three hours Mm -hmm. at a time. And it's just the most pathetically whingy I mean it reminds me of the crap we had in the 80s with the day of action you know where the DWB magazine was wanting to organise a national phone into the BBC to flood them where you know complaints why haven't you brought Doctor Who back and it's, it's that sort of this is our show and how dare you decide that you're going to make it this way it's like a, twi- a Twitter thread I read yesterday where there was this person arguing and I was like, Series 12 is badly written, that's an objective fact. <laughs> and, and everyone's like, no, 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 that's <laughs> literally an opinion. He's yeah. like, no, 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 it's a fact. I, I, and, I want to get and, hold of their objective list of what and makes good writing. Thing, I'd love the thing that. is, it's like they, they were yeah. trying to like really justify themselves because they're like, look, I don't mind that you like the show. I don't mind that bad writing isn't a big deal for you. Mm. I just want to know why you think bad writing is fine because it is a fact that it's badly written. It's like, <laughs> stop it's that. It's just bad argument. <laughs> exactly. But there's almost this performative aspect to criticism mm. now and also to hating you know to strong yeah. and yes yeah, shouty um, criticism i'm quite happy not to engage with all of that yeah i mean this is exactly the sort of thing i've been watching and it's not because i agree with it in any way it's mainly because i want to see what their point of view is and i'm wanting to see if they are making any good points sometimes yeah there's the odd one now and again most of the time it's i don't like this why don't you not like it either. Mm-hmm. You know? I just think why and I put yourself through that. Yeah, because you know. I mean, I I think you can choose you can choose to be selective about mm. who you're listening to as well. Because I've enjoyed going on Twitter after I've seen an episode mm. and finding some reactions, and it helps me shape up what I've thought about an episode and you know things that I didn't spot and often quite funny memes like the the Cybermen heads in the air and so on. And actually, remember Max Curtis who discovered talking mm. about Orphan Fifty Five. You know, have, having discovered that really interesting thread, yeah, and since then followed him mm. that's somebody who is producing kind of thoughtful criticism yeah and it's not all lovely and it's not all horrible it's actually like this didn't like that and why and that's what i think there is to gain from it so i don't really want to poke my head any deeper into a swamp of performative negativity sometimes it's just absolute fucking nonsense and just sheer nastiness for the sake of it max curtis did make some interesting points but orphan 55 <laughs> I totally disagree, but that was fine because <laughs> I thought he made them very eloquently exactly. and, you know, and that's what I like sometimes, you know. I don't need to agree with something. As long as if someone's really laying into it or really defending it, then sure you're working sometimes, you know, if mm-hmm. you're going to sort of stand on that pulpit. I just, 
can't be bothered to hate things that much. Yeah. <laughs> I can get angry about real life things. Yeah. Fair enough. Absolutely. Because those are worth getting angry about because they actually mm. affect you. I'm not a fan of, say, Last Jedi, but I mm. totally get why people might be. And I'm not angry enough about it to talk, <laughs> to talk about <laughs> yeah. it more than that. It's the same with Doctor Who. Like, yeah, I didn't think Series 11 was particularly that exciting, but I've seen that people like it. I'm glad that they do, because mm. I, I don't want everyone to hate something I hate, because that's just absolutely and the show would be cancelled yeah, yeah exactly. and being a critic's easy it really is uh, well, doing... I think being a bad critic's easy yeah. <laughs> you know I can passionately disagree about an episode or get annoyed about some of the way certain things are done but after the rant is over the rant is over then you turn back into Bruce Banner and the, the yeah. cello music exactly. starts basically there's something in the world that has really crystallised now in terms of outrage is is a kind of industry it's a cliche almost it is something that the sort of dark side of fandom touches on a lot of Mm. the truly dark side of human discourse now I don't know I don't know how we can do it better but for me there's a protective thing because you know my mental health would disintegrate if I just tried to engage with half of that so I just shut myself away from it I don't go to those corners of the internet more (laughs) (laughs) like I was saying with those series 12 reviews that were written before the series Mm. ad you know one of the Literally, one of the reviews is titled "The Doctor is Still a Woman." Oh, <laughs> Jesus um, Christ! But it's like, I, I, or is she? I mean, maybe it's Graham. It's yeah. the bit I don't. The bit I don't understand is okay. I know there was a backlash to it at the time; it wasn't nearly as big. But Missy is now, I feel, a universally liked character. Well, uh, do you so get the same people here? decrying Judy as a as, mm. a as a female Doctor and Missy as a female Master? Yeah, or is there what Master's okay, is. but don't touch the Doctor. I think it's like, oh, not the main character. All the problems with the current show are all going to be blamed on Jody. I don't think it's anything to do with the Doctor. It's For me, it's all writing, but she's the face of the show, so therefore she's blamed. Yeah. It really, it really annoys me if that's one. Because mm. you had it, obviously, when David Tennant left. Mm. You know, everyone's golden boy left. Oh, yeah. And then you get all the bands like, oh, Doctor Who died with Matt Smith. Okay, if that really is your opinion, you mean it died with Steve Moffat. Mm. Do- Doctor Who resurrected with Matt Smith. It became oh, yeah. bigger than ever. No, but regardless oh, of disagreeing with the opinion... But, but you, you no. get the people who... When is your blaming the person? Yeah, you'll get the people who say, oh, it was Matt Smith, or it was Peter Capaldi. And it's like... That's no, a team was, effort was, to some extent. It was yeah. the writer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, without good writing, which shows nothing, you can have the best actor in the world there and it's going to falter if they're having to say I mean, the, the argument boils down to, okay, if you really think that it's Jodie's fault, are you going to tell me that the Battle of Ranskarav Kolos is a great season finale if Matt Smith's in it? I'm su- sure he would have been watchable. But it's the only but the bloody still thing going to be would great, be shit. Exactly. It's in the middle, as always. You know, a, a great actor can lift a bad script, but only so far. And a, a great script can be good for a mediocre actor. But you know, you've got some really shit Tom Baker stories, and he's good in it, and he's amusing. It's still a, only a turd that's been slightly polished. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And, and I have an episode title. I personally think, you know, I really like Jodie. I said last week about her emerging darkness is certainly good for the character. I think it works well for her. I think she sort of took a bit of time to find herself in the role. I think she's doing a good job. I've got no problem with the Doctor being a woman. When I watched the reveal, I jumped up and sort of punched the air and it was comforting to myself that I'd done that because I thought, right, it's not me sort of just being right on saying, oh no, a female Doctor's a really cool idea. I was genuinely really happy that she's the doctor. I thought at the time this is a shot in the arm for the programme. Yeah, because I was really happy at the time as well. Although I had a thing at that time where I wanted to be surprised by a regeneration because mm-hmm. I don't like doctor announcements because yeah. I was too young to remember this happened but I don't remember David Tennant being announced. I just would have liked the surprise so I did actually try to not find out because I was at work when the announcement came so <laughs> yes, it didn't, yeah. didn't matter. So it I, lasted I, an hour, didn't well, it? Well, I got home from work and yeah. you said to me you're not going to be able to do this. That's exactly what my experience was. I was at my ex's and yeah. She said, oh, they've announced the new Doctor. And I was like, oh, don't tell me. And she was yeah. like, no, you need to go and watch it because there's no way yeah. you're not going to find yeah, out. And within 20 minutes, somebody had texted me saying, oh, female Doctor, what about that? Eh? Something that I will say about this era, at least, is he keeps it very tight, doesn't he? So yeah. I think I think if our generation did come, we wouldn't know who it was. Very possibly. And we may well have with? multiple ones tonight. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get through the 20th Doctor that, tonight. That does stray into the argument of last week about keeping a lid on things and also so 
publicity because you've got to promote it as well and I don't feel the show is promoted is very well at the moment because they're too spoiler phobic as it were yeah although however something that was pointed out on what cultures weekly don't yeah, do things I watch that. is that because we don't currently know the real life contractual obligations yeah. of the companions, there is actually a sense of danger for them this episode because mm. we don't know if they're back for next year. That's we know Jodie is. I yeah, slightly but resent none of them that, have said anything. That real world knowledge intruding into the programme narratively. When the classic show was on the air, we didn't really have spoilers. Okay, the internet didn't exist. When RTD brought it back, there are magazines devoted to up and coming plots in soap operas, and that's a massive thing now. And that's when Doctor Who entered that realm. You know, you're going to find these things out. Now, you get people that will be okay with that, myself. You know, I don't want the show ruined completely, but I, I kind of like the anticipation sometimes. And then you get people like yourself who Living don't want to know a single thing. Yeah, because it's like, can you imagine how good the cliffhanger World Enough in Time would have been if it was more utopia. Mm, yeah. We totally. were we were talking about so that. So easy. Didn't we? I said that specifically, you know, okay, they spoiled the Cybermen, which was a bit shit, but they spoiled fucking the master. And the reason it was spoiled was because they put it in the trailer, mm. which means they'd filmed it, edited it, all that. They'd got away with that without anyone seeing exactly. it. So you just didn't need to. I know. Yeah. There's a balance to it. I mean, you've got to sort of give a bit of drip to create a buzz and anticipation but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Spyfall part one mm. was a great cliffhanger because we didn't know it was coming exactly mm-hmm. well, you did okay <laughs> I did but that, I completely kept that to myself because just because I might be happy with that I know that other people aren't and I don't want to spoil people's enjoyment of it you know I like watching it my way but my way is not everybody else's way one of the best things they've done this year for example is Fugitive of the Judoon. Now, it was a pretty much open secret that Jack was back. You know, few people didn't know about it. I mean, it was pretty obvious, even if you, say, didn't have any spoiler knowledge, that within a couple of minutes, you could find that out. But that was them throwing the red herring. That was a smoke and mirrors, because the real thing was obviously the reveal of Joe Martin's character. And that, to me, that was a clever piece of engineering. It's high stakes stuff you're playing for though if you're yep. gonna have to bring back a returning companion every time you want i you obviously get the sense that that compa- that character is coming back at some point mm. and that was just a little bit of throw well you said at the time it, it sort of cheapened jack's return that it was used for that function uh, yeah well i don't think it cheapened the return i think it was lovely but the whole reason for it as i said was one smoke and mirrors don't look over there look over there two let's get rid of these fucking companions for uh, for the episode so we can actually go on with an actual story yeah. okay i'm being a bit flippant but you see my point so yeah the caretaker was great <laughs> but it's time we choose our next story for discussion so let's fire up the randomizer look when i give the word press the button the big one yes maybe it works in conjunction with the others here goes time for another episode all right, well, let's try and find out. Now, what could it be? The Christmas Invasion. <laughs> it's David Tennant, new series. But David Tennant also, it's the first ever Christmas special yep. in New Who. Um, I'm not counting Feast of Stephen, of course, here. Yeah, the regeneration story as well, of course. Yeah. This is actually possibly one of the easiest regeneration stories for a doctor because, really and truly, he's only in it for 10 minutes. <laughs> I mean, he's in bed for most of it. He's mirroring Peter Davison. It was his doctor, father in law. Yeah. It is heavily focused on the companions. I Again, as we were just discussing, no problem with that first Christmas story. That was incredibly exciting. Connor and I have got some great memories great. of Christmas stories because it was of an added excitement for Christmas Day. I mean, this was 2005 Christmas, so you would have been about seven. Why don't you share any memories you have of this right now? And then you can email in your thoughts beyond that. It was actually a few firsts for me. Although, obviously, before Doctor Who came back, I'd, I'd seen Classic Who uh, and things like that. Although, this was kind of the first regeneration, as mm-hmm. in live for me. Obviously, I'd seen them before, but this was the first time it had, it had happened. Like, New. Yeah, 
Yeah. Can- canonically. Obviously, first Christmas episode. It was, yeah, it was just really ex- exciting. It is a good story, and you've got, like, returning characters mm. as well, which just sort of help things along with, like, Harriet Jones, and obviously we, we did, you didn't have a change of companion, but mm. you still had Mickey and Jackie in it as yeah. well. That does tend to help, bringing in new Doctors. I think cause... it's also quite a cosy thing, isn't it? Yeah, because they it... did it with Peter Capaldi as well, because mm-hmm. they had the Paternoster gang. And like you said, he, he's actually only really in it for about ten minutes, but he, <laughs> does, he does steal it. It's a great performance yeah. right off the bat. And he bursts and it, out at the end and is glorious, isn't he? Yeah, it completely mm. sells himself straight away. You know, his opening of the TARDIS doors on Sycorax ship, you're like... Yep, that's the Doctor. It's the same with, you know, Matt Smith when he climbs out the TARDIS and you've done it straight away and it's great. It's, it's also quite interesting because he comes across as sort of very sort of mad and Tom Baker-esque, you know, this whole who am I, you know, am I a fighter, am I a lover? And so you've got all that jokiness and then at the very end he throws the Satsuma and kills the sicker actually. No second here. chances. Uh, no second chances and that sort of, and it's like, whoa, you know. <laughs> that reinvention of the character is stared in the face in the, for the first time in the show and in a much more on-screen way yeah. it's talking about explicitly the Doctor's articulating his new character. Yeah, because you have a complete opposition to how, say, Christopher Eccleston was before him because at the end of the episode you get that he's, you get this sort of sense that he's kind of a bit more family oriented now that he has Christmas dinner with Jackie and, mm. and Mickey and Rose and Chris Chris Jefferson's doctor just wouldn't have done that mainly because him and Jackie didn't like each other yeah. <laughs> but Jackie's warmed to this new one now Christopher Eccleston's Doctor had survivor's guilt. This Doctor is coming to terms with it. Uh, you know, in the day of the Doctor, the man who regrets, the man who forgets. It's the process of grief. Yeah, settle, settling down a bit more. Yeah. And ex- just sort of accepting that, you know, this has happened, but this is sort of my new life now, mm. and I can... I can make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, it's a strong opener for a new Doctor, for Very sure. Much. And lots and lots to talk about when we come back to it. So, Christmas Invasion. Lovely. I don't have a sonic screwdriver because I'm not off on a romp. I call it what it is. A great loss of pomp and circumstance. Well, we've got the randomizer fired up. Let's play a bit of romp or pomp. You need to get some sort of game show introduction music to us. I'm you veering post- dangerously close enough to game show presenter voices. Oh, well, yeah, I have notes. Connor, new to this format, as, as are we really, we've just done it once before. I'm going to click the randomizer, we'll get a story up, and then we just quickly say each of us whether we think it's romp or pomp. Romp being the kind of fun knockabout stories, and pomp being the kind of alternate version, the more serious ones. It's not a perfect dichotomy. So here we go. First one. Image of the Fendal. Haven't seen it. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> Pomp. Pomp, yeah. It's yeah. quite spooky, isn't it's it? It's very good. Here goes another one. The Green Death. Uh, romp. But, I mean, the other thing is... Both. Uh, yeah, romp, pomp. The, the thing is, though, this fucking randomizer, <laughs> every time you do this, we're getting like, classic, and Hang every on. time we do I'm it... I'm checking the settings. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah trolling Chaz's setting is yeah. on. Knock, knock. Who's there? <laughs> Peter Capaldi. <laughs> romp. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a very okay. serious romp. Next one. The Time Warrior. Yay. Romp. Romp. Oh, <laughs> oh romp. beautiful. It's good. Romp. Next one. Dragonfire. Romp. Romp. Yeah. Fugitive the Jadoon. Pomp. It's half romp. It half sort of pomp, starts off romp, yeah. gets pomp, and then becomes holy fuck. Captain Jack scenes romp. Romp. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the end thing with Barrowman on screen is automatically adds 10 to the romp character. Okay, let's do a couple more. Planet of the Dead. Romp. Um, it's rompy, romp. Yeah. yeah. The Christine stuff is yeah. rompy. and bit joke. Yeah. yeah, fun. I mean, it's a sort of seasonal special, isn't it? So yeah. it's always got yeah. that edge of the romp there. Okay, next one. The King's Demons. Uh, it's a bit of a romp. romp. Oh, God almighty. Ainley's chewing scenery like a beaver. So any scenery nibbling gives it a couple of points in the rompometer, <laughs> yeah. we reckon. Okay, last one for this time. Time heist. Romp. Oh, romp. But my <laughs> God, that's a so good fun. play on the heist genre. Great. Oh, well, that was fun. I challenge you to a contest of strength. A fight? Without weapons. It's challenge time. So, as you'll know, we have challenged Chaz to watch The Mutants, and now is the time to find out what he thought of it. Well, I watched it. Oh, thank goodness. Right. So, basically what happened was, sitting down, ready to watch it, and got a knock at the door, and I thought, oh, my God, I've come back again from the future. (laughs) But no, no, two lovely young men uh, dressed impeccably in black suits, little name badges, called uh, Malachi and uh, Elan uh, sort of asked me if I'd heard the good news and I thought 
do you know what? I've had a really crap couple of weeks. I would welcome some good news. So I invited <laughs> them in and we started talking. And I just said, look, I'm about to watch this story, you know, the science fiction Doctor Who story, The Mutants. And they said, wow, you know, we'd, we'd love to watch that, you know. Funny enough, the titles all started, but I thought I'd fallen asleep, but I maybe did, maybe didn't. But the next thing I remember was the end titles of the last episode. Oh, God. And I just don't know. They kept going on about the papal mainframe. Have you got any kind of Sharpie marks on your hands or anything? Yeah, funny enough. I mean, Uh, I was absolutely covered in Sharpie marks. I don't think it counts, mate. Okay. Predictable as ever, Doctor. It is time for Doctor by Doctor, where we randomly select a doctor and then talk about their era. So, Connor, as our guest, you get to do the honours and pick one of our folded up bits of paper. So, give it a shoogle. Very good. Your um, entire life's been leading up to this. Very exciting. Ah, oh we picked God. the wild card. So we're going to talk about alternative doctors rather than any particular one doctor. Tonight is going to potentially add more to that <laughs> list. Oh, God. <laughs> Do you want to leave it till next week then? Well, no, I think we've got, to, we've got to sort of respect the randomness. But let's just sort of define the territory a little bit. So I think we've got Peter Cushing as an early mm. alternative who made two Dalek films yeah. based on the first two Dalek serials from the show itself. We've got um, comedy doctors like various people throughout the years. of that Curse of Fatal Death? Yes. Yeah, we've got the various Fatal Death doctors. We've got Lenny Henry we talked about way back. Mm. Um, Spike Milligan did a Doctor Who sketch. Loads I of think done I sketch. genuinely think we should wash over the Spike Milligan <laughs> yeah, one. Absolutely. Yeah. I think did French and Saunders do one? The, There's been a bunch of things. They're not necessarily alternative doctors. They're more Doctor Who sort of related and sketches. Well, maybe we'll skip those and talk more about actual alternative yeah. takes. So we could go into Big Finish and so on. Yeah. Is John Hurt part of this? Oh. Obviously. I I don't know if he had a... No, he doesn't have a card of his own, so the War Doctor is a definite... I think he'll dominate this one. He's so aggressive. Well, well, I'd listen to Big Finish. Mm. Yeah, great. But, well, let's kick off with John Hurt then, because he's canon, and we'll take it from there. (laughs) God, that worked. I really liked John Hurt's performance, really. I think he actually managed to sell himself, even in just the one episode, much like what Paul Mm. McGann managed to do. But I think it was a really nice balance to connect classic and new Who with. Because he did feel more like a classic Doctor. Yeah. But then, you know, obviously the time war aspects and things like that that did make him feel new who. And he was great in Day of the Doctor. A really welcome addition that just fit in seamlessly. And then obviously, like with Paul McGann again, Big Finish expanded him. That's the exact thing we were talking about last week. How he was a classic Doctor commenting on new who, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. You expect... uh, a good performance is John Hart. I mean, that kind of goes without saying, but yeah. but Doctor Who is still an interesting gig because it's not everybody can sort of we'll pass it off, it off yeah. you know? And he really carries it off within that one episode, establishes himself as a Doctor and a very good Doctor. And as Connor said, you know, Big Finish have found a gap. It's a gap in the fabric of reality. So... Uh, <laughs> They tell, have inserted him. Tell us more about those. I haven't heard any of these, but what, what's out there with Big Finish's War Doctor stuff? He got his own series, really. Hmm. Uh, four box sets, three episodes each. So he got ba- he basically got a full full one series. Fantastic. Uh, Twelve episodes of War Doctor. Unfortunately, John Hurt passed before. I assume they could have done more. Hmm. The the series he was in was was very good. It wasn't sort of like epic in the heart of the time war stuff that maybe you'd expect um, well most of it anyway mm-hmm. but it's more John Hurt's doctor helping where he can on planets mm. that are getting affected by it right yeah. yeah so there's an episode where in a planet that was used as a battleground that sounds cool it's, I'll have to look him up is it Lilo or Romano one of them mm. is in the last box there yeah. which is actually really nice you know seeing, yeah. seeing that relationship between him and a previous companion but see that that's great because they built him up you know he's the the dark shame the Doctor's shame and then he gets redeemed by Day of the Doctor. Like you say, obviously he died, but did they manage to wrap it up? Oh yeah, 100%. It's not a case of the last episode of the fourth box set led into Day of the Doctor. No, because I think they might have wanted to expand because they also did another series with Derek Jacobi as the War Master. Mm. 
and there's one where it's him versus Paul McGann, which I definitely think was meant to be. Mm. To be the Warlord. Yeah. There was some great potential. It did end really well, and there was um, expansions of the Time War as well, because they had the Sontaran aspect of the Time War, because you know oh, they, yeah, they were yeah. desperate mm. to get involved, weren't they? But yeah. They just weren't allowed. <laughs> Please, but, can we play? <laughs> so it's standing outside the gates, going. Yeah. Oh. I think it's it's interesting also that having stories set in the Time War. They can't all be sort of super big and epic. You've got to no. just sort of touch on smaller elements of well, it. I mean, it's like war in general, you know. I mean, not everything was a battle of Midway or, mm-hmm. you know, Dunkirk. Yeah. You know, it's small, you know... Small little, human stories in the middle yeah. of it all. So, let's talk about Peter Cushing. Uh, mm-hmm. Connor, I take it you've seen the Peter Cushing films, have you? Yeah, yeah. saw them loads as a kid. Yeah, I mean, me too. I kind of I grew up watching here. them. They were repeated quite a lot, I think. Bank holiday yeah. uh, staple. Really. And I said before, they were kind of, for me, they almost overwrote the actual episodes from Doctor Who itself because they're kind of bigger budget colour more exciting versions of those stories You would have seen these I certainly did see these stories before we saw the Dalek invasion mm. of Earth and before we saw the Daleks yeah. you would come across them and it'd be like oh this is my afternoon sorted yeah. now you I know? have such happy memories of them the, the kind of the swirling title sequences yeah. the shoopy music yeah. um, can almost quote a lot of them verbatim oh, the, yeah. the, the second one especially which has yeah. you know, got a wider scope and more epic. It's and of really course, Bernard Cribbins, Bernard first Cribbins. story into Doctor Who. Yeah, Ooh, glorious know. as Tom the Policeman. They strike a reasonably good balance, I would say, between action and that slapstick comedy. You mm-hmm. know, there's a lot of sort of nice little comedic moments. Uh, the first one less them. so, I think. Yeah, the, the first Cribbins one's is... slightly more serious, but, you well, know... No, I think I think Roy Castle's character is much more of a buffoon in the first one. Yeah, I suppose. But the thing about this, the big, if you like, plot point, is the Doctor's human, clearly and established as a human inventor who's just built mm. the TARDIS in his back garden. And so Susan is still his granddaughter, but she's a child now rather than a mm. young woman. And he's also accompanied by, I think, is it Jenny in the first one and Louise in the uh, second? Something like that. His niece, Louise, in the second, I think Jenny's is. Is she another well, Another possibly. niece, yeah. yeah. Um, so Roy Castle comes in playing Ian as Jenny's kind of love interest in mm. the first one. And then Bernard Cribbins plays Tom, who's a policeman who stumbles into the TARDIS in the brilliant opening sequence of the second film. Actually, I think she is called Barbara. I think Jenny Lynn. Jenny Lynn, yes, yeah, sorry. Is the actress that played her. Yeah, there you go. Well, I was determined to make some mistakes so that Connor could correct them for us. They're just really enjoyable, aren't they? Mm, they're fun. They're, yeah, because obviously, I'm not going to say they're better than the actual episodes, that's probably sacrilege. <laughs> but you take a seven-part episode like The Daleks yeah. and you make it into a sort of feature length film. But it does show you how much padding, for example, there is in some of these early Doctor Who's. And I love um, Dark Invasion of Earth and the Daleks, but I mean, I'm the first to admit that they kind of are stretching the point. What do we think of Cushing, though? I mean, this is... Because does he get beyond just playing Dodgery Old Scientist? He's a great actor, undisputably a wonderful, wonderful actor. I, I think he does. I really do. Do you remember an adventure in Space and Time where they're describing the character of the Doctor to William Hartnell? You know, that twinkle in the eye and stuff. And I thought they're sort of describing Peter Cushing. Hartnell played it layered. You know, he was he was grumpy. And he evolved into a more sort of avuncular character. Peter Cushing was that description of the Doctor mm-hmm. in the first place. I think there's less time for the nuance in the films. Mm. No, I think he is really good. I don't think making him a human scientist was necessarily a problem. I mean, basically, because they're, they're not canon. Although there was a plan to make them canon in the Day of the Doctor. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because they were going yeah, to have the posters in the Black Archive, and that would have been, like, <laughs> humanity's attempt to sort of... Oh, tell the story. Um, yeah, yeah. To, yeah. All the actors beyond Peter Cushion as well were really good. The only major difference, really, is obviously Susan. Still a good actress, but also can't really have the same ending of Invasion of Earth. <laughs> that might that might be considered a little bit dodgy. I think Roberto Toby's a better Susan in a lot of ways. I was going to say that, but I didn't want yeah. to. Uh, well, see, it's okay. I'm quite happy to take the toxic fandom flack. I am looking forward to Big Finish's upcoming box set of Susan in the Time War. 
Uh, oh God, yeah. Well, Roberto Toffi's got a box set coming out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the like, two Susans. Susan travelling from Warstruck Planet to Warstruck oh, Planet well, and spraining her ankle in each one. <laughs> it's called Susan's War, and um, it's basically she's every time Lord's been called up, so she's been Jesus. called up too. Right. See what she and cool. she goes on diplomatic mission. I wonder what will happen to is it David? Oh yes, her husband. Mm. So let's move on. Let's find another alternative doctor. So we have got the ones in Curse of Fatal Death. Mm. I mean, it's a comedy, but it's also a Stephen Moffat, Moffat comedy sketch so in in a funny funny way almost some bits of it are like a template for new hue not least a female doctor at the end of course so really our, our Jodie Whittaker's thunder was stolen not only by Ruth but by Joanna Lumley, Joanna Lumley. Yeah. Yes. Curse of Fatal Death is on YouTube if you haven't seen it it's well worth digging out it's um it must have been released as well oh it has I've, I've got the video too. yeah go and buy yeah. it the other thing it bridges to new who is the idea of the doctor having a romantic involvement with the companion because this is the big twist is it, the doctor's going to settle down and marry his companion mm. and it's so weird how many jokes from that come up in yes. Stephen Moffat's era of Doctor as well? We've touched on Moffat being the great recycler <laughs> of his own stuff. Although um, Chibnall recently recycled a joke from there as well. In Spyfall, when the Master was stuck in the 40s, and he comes back, he's like, that's the longest 70 years of That's right. He said at the time. 400 like, years in the sunning zoo. <laughs> Jonathan Price is a great he's master, isn't he? Wonderful. I mean, Just wonderful. He absolutely is relishing that part. And yeah, Rowan Atkinson, strangely... Very good. Yeah, as an alternative ninth doctor. And then, what's the order? It's Richard E. Grant, then... Uh, Jim Broadbent and then Hugh Grant and then Joanna Lumley yeah that's right so Richard E. Grant's the rudest of the bunch Broadbent just regenerates because he's too shy to talk to girls you know when Davey last week was talking about oh he never gets the actor he wants to play the doctor Broadbent was the one time he got the actor he wanted was uh, (laughs) Jim Broadbent and those were all wonderful big names at the time and of course Hugh Grant superstar at that point I've just seen it's really weird that Joanna Lumley would have been the 13th yes (laughs) no the, the parallel are, are That's crashing. very strange. Really isn't it? bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so almost if it was a plan. For I remember me. thinking at the time that Hugh Grant was actually really good in the kind of the small, almost serious yeah. section when he's dying. Yeah, he, he plays that really nicely. I know that Bill Nye was apparently first choice right. for the ninth Doctor, but one of the reasons they didn't they went with Christopher Eccleston was because. They kind of thought casting an older guy would probably kill him with the punishing schedule. Hmm. Eccleston's an inspired choice, so it's hard to do better than that. I mean, if we could talk about alternative doctors in terms of the ones who were nearly cast as well, hmm. it's actually, it's potentially rich, fertile territory to come and back to. And it's also an entire episode. Yes. Well, <laughs> well, I was just going to say, on the topic of Richard E. Grant, he was the canonical ninth doctor. That's right. And Until he was. the Shalka, that's right. Yes. <laughs> and Derek Jacobi was the master in yes. that particular... Well, so he didn't. He didn't pass the. How audition. many nice doctors have there been? At least three, then. Yeah. So alternative doctors. Who else have we got? Somebody called Joe. Something. Joe Martin. Yes. <laughs> it's hard to talk about Ruth. Until it really we know a bit is. More, so we'll I think we'll have to revisit more that tonight, one. probably. Yeah. Stay tuned. I haven't seen Scream of the Shark. Was Richard E. Grant good? Um, it's a sort of animation, isn't it? Yeah, it's alright. I think he was better than Fatal Death. <laughs> to be honest, it's not that I don't like it, it's just that actually I haven't seen it. So when I eventually watch The Mutants, you could possibly challenge me to watch Scream of the Shalker. Well, I mean, well, I've watched The Mutants. What I don't have a whole other regenerative cycle, so I'm not sure I'll live that long. The only other ones we could talk maybe a little about is the stage doctors. We had Trevor Martin mm-hmm. in The Seven Keys to Doomsday. David Banks? David Banks played the doctor. The cyber leader played the oh. doctor as understudy to John Perry. David Warner? Oh, yes. yeah, of course. The um, the Unbound Doctor. Uh, the Unbounds. Um, and was Derek Jacoby one of those as well? Yes, he was. Was he? I think there yeah. was a whole season. David Warner's Unbound Doctor is the mm. one that's still going. I don't listen to them, but I know that he's still in the Bernie Summerfield box sets. I think he's the alternative third yes. Doctor. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. he is, because... Because Jeffrey Bailden was the first Doctor. And the first technical female Doctor was Arabella Weir, who is in... Two Doors Down. She was sort of, you know, quite big in comedy in the 90s and stuff. Actually, she's the third Doctor... But she plays it as this slob who likes to get pissed a lot. Okay, any last shouts for another alternative? I should have made a list. I could say one more, and that's Nick Briggs. He played, and that is actually, I would say, quite important, because he played the Doctor in two formats. He played the Doctor in audio, 
in the precursor to all the big Finnish stories, which was audiovisuals. And he played a really interesting Doctor, some great emotional range in it. They also had him in the official Doctor Who magazine comic. Paul McGann regenerated into the Nick Briggs Doctor for, <laughs> I think it was three or four stories. But it turns out that it was a trap and it all got revealed in a story called Wormwood where it was revealed that Paul McGann was still actually the Doctor. You can tell the sexists are hoping for that again. <laughs> it's funny you've uh, you mentioned that. Because, come on, Graham, come on, Graham. <laughs> you know how I was saying earlier in the in the podcast about fandom? Wormwood gets mentioned practically in every <laughs> fucking sentence. I was like, oh, well, they've obviously done it this way. And I'm thinking to yourself, do you honestly think that they are going to go that complex. Well, to... you watch what you say, because you could be eating your words in like two hours' time. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I'm going to go on record. The people that are coming up with these theories, you're going to cut this, but I don't care. The people that come up with these theories are sitting in a corner, masturbating into their own fucking feces. <laughs> it's the end. But the moment has been prepared for. Nine times out of ten. Listen, thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Connor, for joining us. It's really lovely to have another voice and another kind of perspective on things. If you have any feedback or questions, or if you know the name of the Doctor, then we can be reached at randomizerpodcast.gmail.com. And you can reach us on Twitter at randomizerpod. And in both cases, that's randomizer with an S, not a Z. That, that is a good point, actually, because we've what? seen Hartnell... No, not that. Oh. <laughs>